Welcome to Open Out, a podcast series that explores practical ways we can intentionally open ourselves and our faith communities to the great cultural diversity that is the new Canada. This then is a program about intentional change recorded in the midst of unprecedented, unexpected change. Change that has quite simply impacted nearly every human alive today. My name is Bill Miller. And this series grew out of research funded by the United Church, trying to uncover the core elements that assist communities to change. The sometimes surprising and often overlooked factors that help a church like Knox United in Winnipeg, where I served for 14 years, transform itself into a global community. Although they can be frustrating at times, our brains are marvels. In normal times, they are innately resistant to change, hardwired against it. Yet, far more easily than we might expect, these same brains can adapt and change rapidly. We're seeing it everywhere. That was the theme of our last episode about rebooting the brain. Today's episode goes a bit further and looks specifically at some of the inner mechanisms of human change. The title is Bricks, Sandals and Leaks. Years ago, I worked in congregational change and transformation. I suspect I was good at that because I actually find change difficult. It is difficult, isn't it? At least we instinctively feel it is. Our brains are hardwired for stability, and our interpersonal systems crave equilibrium. That craving is real. And yet we humans are capable of such astonishing changes. Just look at what has been happening over this late winter and spring of 2020. In very real ways, with no hyperbole, our everyday living has been utterly transformed. And this has happened in mere weeks. And we're coping. Vast numbers of people are no longer going out to work, not even going out at all if they can avoid it. Thousands have been laid off. Our children are no longer going to school. If we happen to see an old friend or a loved one, no kisses or hugs, not even a handshake, just a smile and a nod and two meters of separation. No Friday prayers at the mosques. On Saturdays, the synagogues are silent. And on Sundays, our church buildings are shuttered. And yet we cope. We adapt. We even find and share joy. We sing arias from condo porches. Well, I don't sing arias, but those who can do. People living near hospitals head outside at shift change to give standing ovations to the healthcare workers. In a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, we've all been changed. We can and have changed. It's a remarkable example of how our brains and hearts so expertly calculate net pain. In this case, the choices are clear. Saying the same involves massive suffering and deaths. Changing involves radically restructuring our lives. Our brains do their calculations. They see the pain of staying the same outweighs the challenge of changing, and so we change. Pain is a great motivator, a catalyst for change. 
But it's not the only motivator. Pain is not a single parent. Uh, I'm not exactly the athletic type, and no one has ever said I was graceful. On top of that, I'm well down the ADHD scale. And so when my daughters gave me a gift certificate for yoga classes for my 65th birthday, I was stumped. The idea of me taking yoga classes, putting on my little Lululemon outfit, it seemed like a setup for a sitcom. But I learned the studio had a men's class. And I was curious. I mean, what harm could come? I decided to go all on my own. First class. And now we're in. I was doing okay. Then, when we were doing some stretch at the wall, the teacher, Drew, repositioned me just slightly. I, I collapsed in pain. I couldn't move. I just lay there on the ground in fetal position, sweating in agony for like 20 minutes. Drew asked if I needed an ambulance. Turns out it was a kidney stone, but I'd never had one before. I thought it was yoga. I left feeling embarrassed, but still curious. I showed up at the next class. Drew paled a bit when he saw me, but I kept going to classes. See, this wasn't motivated by pain. Okay, there was pain, but that wasn't the motivator. This was all about possibility. Pain and possibility. The co-parents of change. In these podcasts, I mentioned Gil Rendell before, my mentor in congregational change. He had a, a formula, a, a, an equation. It began pain plus possibilities minus the box. Okay, now the box was limited thinking as in, you know, thinking out of the box. So add pain and possibility, subtract limited thinking, you get change. Not quite, he says. This will lead us into chaos, into the wilderness, and it is there where we can make the faithful creative change needed. Some of us know that place well, the wilderness, the chaos. You might be one of them. Others have tried to avoid it at all costs. One of the nice things about podcasting I've learned is that I can freely talk about stuff I hardly understand, like in this case, computing and artificial intelligence. Turns out in AI computing, they speak about fuzzy logic. It's an approach to computing that ditches the old black and white binary system and makes room for partial truth. And since nuanced truth is a part of our everyday living, maybe we can learn something here. Turns out you begin with an intentional process called fuzzification. I'm not making this up, I promise. Then when you achieve the required level of fuzziness, of chaos, of ambiguity, that's when you do your change stuff. And after that, you, quote, defuzzify output to get crisp output values. We intentionally enter this time of chaos and confusion, and we must resist the temptation of prematurely clarifying. It takes remarkable courage for a person, for, for a community to intentionally enter this unknown, this uncertainty. This podcast is being prepared in early April 2020, and we see human communities all over the world showing this kind of courage. To be clear, this chaos process doesn't apply to all changes, just the really big ones. We probably realize that there's many different kinds of changes. The most basic is a problem to solve. Now here the problem, the question is clear. 
For example, the lock on the church's washroom door is not working. Those responsible logically explore the options. Well, should we fix the lock or get a new one? And then the board or the building committee make a decision. In this case, majority rule is fine. You don't really need consensus. Or you can have a values continuum to manage. Where there are differences of values involved, you don't have a problem to solve. It's not a problem. You have a continuum, a spectrum of different opinions that you need to somehow manage. For example, your church does not have many children. And so on many Sundays, there's no kids to come forward for the children's time. But Reverend Joan, she loves children's time. So every Sunday, without fail, she does her story and asks her questions. If there's no kids, then she uses the whole congregation. Some of the members love it. It's their favorite part of the service. Others feel embarrassed or belittled by it. Who's right? Neither's right. Voting won't help. And you won't achieve consensus. Don't even try. It's not a problem to solve. It's a continuum of differing views. And you got to somehow sensitively manage that continuum. There's life-altering changes big enough to change the pattern of relationships in a community. They're major, but they're more like interruptions, not necessarily permanent. Decisions about how to be church, do church during a pandemic, are kind of like that. Then there's transformational change. This significantly changes the pattern of the relationship permanently. An example would be the decision to become an affirming congregation. That's the name given to United Church congregations that are intentionally open to all, regardless of sexual orientation. That decision is transformational. So too would be a decision to truly welcome and engage with those who are culturally different. You've shifted the community permanently. Consensus, though challenging, is the goal here. It can't be achieved, well, then you're in a values continuum that you have to somehow manage. Consensus is very popular in many liberal church gatherings. We're trying to be inclusive, respectful. But in our highly individualistic North American culture, consensus can be tricky. At Knox, we had people from all over the world. I remember asking some folk who were from collectivist cultures how consensus worked back home. Regardless of the culture, the responses were similar. Consensus was saved for the really big decisions. Then the village or the the collective would, would sit in a circle and talk until everyone came to agreement. There could be no time limits. You just talked. It took whatever time it needed. But the other decisions, well, they were made by a very small group of trusted elders. So it was highly centralized. Deferring to authority is not something Westerners do easily. In the North American context, then, consensus might not involve everyone reaching full agreement, but agreement to the point that those opposed will not sabotage it. This means that those who are genuinely opposed will need to feel respected and fully heard. Making sure this happens is a critical task for leaders. You might have guessed by now that I kind of like tools. And so to work toward consensus, here's a quick tool I've used and found helpful. You can use it when you're, when you're trying to find out the feelings of a group towards some kind of a significant change or direction. You can ask each person to identify which of these is closest to their feelings, their beliefs. Enthusiastically oppose. I am against this and I will actively work to block its implementation. 
or moderately oppose. While I'm personally not convinced this direction is right, I don't want to block the group from going ahead on this. Or moderately support. I support this idea or direction. I, I have a few reservations, but I can support it. But I cannot promise to actively work to implement it. Or number four, enthusiastic support. I support this idea, and I will actively work to help make it happen. You can use this tool then to open up a conversation with those who are not yet ready to support the direction, find out what they need, and build toward respectful agreement. Of course, in almost any community, however, there are folk with rather toxic personalities, people who are habitually negative. In transformational change, leaders or, or the group itself may need to address this directly. Sort of like when my grade 10 principal called me into his office for a chat, and he suggested that he and I and everyone at the school really might be happier if I transferred to a different school. We had to have a few of those conversations at Knox in the early days. They were painful, but necessary. A church, like any community, is a system. It's like a body. That image is familiar for many of us. It's the biblical image for the church, a body, interconnected. For example, if I pass a kidney stone in a yoga class, my whole body responds. Actually, systems, including our bodies, are constantly changing. When I sit on my sofa watching that corner gas rerun channel, I look all stationary and solid. But inside me, there are like zillions of electrons all whirring around like crazy. Cells are dying and new ones are forming. It's just a, all a buzz of activity. There's all this energy inside the system. But systems like equilibrium, getting all of the different forces balanced. Balanced, like riding a bicycle. Now think about systems. If you push at a system, what does it do? It pushes back. Push harder, it pushes back harder. That's resistance. It's in the system so that it doesn't go into unnecessary change. And so resistance, therefore, is totally natural, even healthy. Whenever we try to get a group to change, this means we're trying to get a bunch of individual systems, each with their own worrying electrons and unique biases and vulnerabilities, their own triggers and idiosyncrasies, all to somehow come into alignment and move more or less in the same direction at more or less the same time. It almost killed Moses. Well, I guess it did. This is where the bricks and the sandals and the leaks come in. Well, we'll come to that in a minute. It's a journey, this change process. As a church, we get journey. William Bridges, one of the great minds and perfect names in this field, said, it isn't the changes that do you in, it's the transitions. That process of moving from one stage to the next. Now, Bridges himself just identified three stages, an ending phase, when we need to say goodbye and lament. In the neutral zone, that's that chaos. He calls it an unsettling time of exploration. And then new beginnings, a final adjustment to the new ways. 
Gil Rendell, looking at congregational change, sees us moving through several stages, each stage accompanied by new learnings. We begin with feeling unsettled. And here the important task is to feel unsettled, to feel uncomfortable. That's where we learn we can handle difficult feelings, both as individuals and as a group. Two, resist. Resistance comes in different ways, but it is important. We can see resistance for what it is, a natural response to being prodded, and we learn that we can manage our fears. Three, facing reality. In this stage, we can see what is really in front of us. No blaming, no judging. Like looking at those statistics concerning church decline in episode three. At this stage, we learn that I or we can move into the unknown intentionally without it triggering my resistance or our resistance. And then number four, into the unknown itself, the chaotic, fuzzy time. Anthropologists call it liminal. means you're in the doorway. We grieve, we wave goodbye, and we learn that I and we can tolerate uncertainty. Number five, envision the future. We start to visualize who I or we want to be in this new future. And we learn that I or we can trust that something good will come through this. Number six is exploration. We start to explore the possibilities, experiment with new ways. And we learn that I or we are able to take risks, that I am open to new ways of being me, that we are open to new ways of being us. Number seven, commit to action. We choose the path or direction that seems best and go for it. And we learn that I or we can envision something new and then make it happen. And number eight, we integrate the changes. We become our new integrated selves, our new community. These stages also hold pretty true for individual change as well. Emotions and energy change along this journey. In the beginning, energy is high. Emotions are aroused. It might be anticipation, excitement, or even anger. And as we move into the middle section, letting go but not yet arriving anywhere clear, the energy is low. It can be depression, detachment, and even distancing from one another. Uh, this is where it's a grind. But the emotional energy returns as we defuzzify, as we emerge different. New hope, new vision. There's even those great moments when we soar. We reconnect with one another in this new identity. If you are in the middle of it, and it feels a bit like hell, well then things are probably moving along as they should. So collective transformational change is a journey. And for Christians and Jews, journey is our foundational story. The Exodus, that profound and often hilarious human story of a community that itself was utterly transformed. In Egypt, the story begins. The Hebrews, then a kind of ragtag coalition of clans, were oppressed, forced to make bricks out of straw and mud, backbreaking menial labor under an unrelenting sun. Oh, pain. It became intolerable when their Egyptian overlords took away the straw. 
I don't know much about making bricks, but I gather making it without straw is even more laborious. There was pain. A leader emerged, from among them but not, one who shared their vision and experience but also had a vision of life beyond menial labor and oppression, a promise of freedom, of land, and a covenant, a relationship with their God. The leader, of course, was Moses, and it was he who would lead them into this change process. Bricks, then, they're the symbol of motivation. Without high-level motivation in a community, that change is not going to happen. And achieving that motivation sometimes involves increasing pain, not in a manipulative way, but by speaking the truth, entrusting the community with the gift of clarity, of reality. That was in part my intent in episode three, where we looked at those projections of what will happen if the current patterns of church decline do not change. Fortunately, believing that humans are very capable of facing painful truths is warranted. We're seeing that play out all across the world right now. So that's the bricks. Then what are the sandals? Do you remember that tiff that Moses had with the people? He had many of them. This one's in Deuteronomy 29. And Moses ends up yelling at them, Okay, you noticed all those great signs and wonders, but you still don't get it. Your clothes never wore out. And your sandals, 40 years walking on hot desert sand, and they never wore out? Did you even notice? So for me, the sandals are a symbol of capacity, the often unnoticed capacity of humans in any organization, including the church, to face reality when they need to, to change their patterns, to adapt, to entirely transform. For me, it's not theoretical. I saw it firsthand at Knox. Knox folk were like the Hebrews, a rather unlikely group. You see, God seems to have a fondness for the unlikely. Moses couldn't speak well, so he was a natural oracle in God's eyes. And maybe God chose me for working in congregational change because I find change so difficult. Competence is no prerequisite for faith. Perhaps it even gets in the way of the deep honesty we need. Psalm 51 in the old tongue said, Behold, thou desirest truth in the inward parts. It applies to the inward parts of communities as well as the inward parts of people. Bricks, sandals. So what about the leeks? Ah, the leeks. This takes me to maybe my favorite story in the Bible. It's in Numbers 11, one of the truly great, poignant, comic chapters in the whole Bible. The people, out in the arid wilderness, saved from oppression, fed daily by miraculous manna, start whining. Oh, manna. I wish we had something else to eat out here. We need some protein, some meat, some fish. Oh, remember the fish we ate in Egypt? Oh, the fish. Not only fish, remember the leeks? Oh, the leeks. And the cucumbers. Ah, the leeks. For me, the leeks represent that longing to return to some imagined stability in the past, in that pre-change state. In this case, it was back to Egypt, or at least a romanticized version of Egypt, when life somehow seemed easier. 
there are these sudden turns, these sudden, sometimes abrupt U-turns that happen after a community has gone through some significant change. Not just communities. Those who have wrestled with addictions know this experience. For groups, sometimes it happens midway when we're in that time of confusion. Or, curiously, afterwards in that plateau, after we have moved forward through a change. When I was working with congregations who had undergone significant change, we noticed that after some period of time, a wave would come. Sometimes it was small. Sometimes it was a tsunami. And that wave would seek to undo all the changes. This, too, is a normal part of the journey. Bricks, sandals, leaks, motivation, capacity, switchbacks along the way. A podcast about how we change, written and published in the midst, if not the middle, of the most transformative time in any of our lives. This is a time of sheltering in, important in itself, but it will be followed by a time of opening out. And with that will come decisions about how we open out, and to whom we open ourselves, to whom we open our communities. This sheltering in, shutting down the global economy, stopping almost all of our normal activities, allows us the possibility of something like the promised year of Jubilee, when the fields are left fallow, and the debts forgiven, and the slaves set free. A social restart. It is as if the world has gone on retreat, and our retreat leaders are pain and possibility. A couple we've known, of course, for years, but never seen in operation quite like this. It is, in fact, a remarkable time, the compassion and caring that is already evident. Humans have this capacity in the midst of such catastrophe, such disruption to adapt, and to do so rather quickly, to draw on deep wisdom, deep love, in such times as this, and this is so in keeping with our themes, in such times as this, no one is a stranger. May it be so. I am grateful for the support of the United Church Foundation as well as the United Church's Intercultural Ministries and Publishing House. Theme music is by Bruce Harding. Next week's podcast is called That's How the Light Gets In. In it, we'll explore the role of clumsiness, humility, and vulnerability in leadership in the process of opening ourselves and our faith communities outward. Talk to you then. <music>